Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, with Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group founded and ran by yours truly. And as of this recording, we now have five Blu-rays out for retail sale. Uh, If you're interested in picking up any of the five titles I will tell you about in a second, you could find me at either FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com or DesperateVisions at Yahoo.com. Or you can find me on the Facebook page under Jason Rudy or Franco Observer Podcast or the Instagram page of the Franco Observer Podcast. We have pictures on the page of the DVDs and the front and back covers and what the discs look like and all that good stuff. So right now for sale, we have right uh, for eight, nine, ten, like 12 films right now over five discs. The newest one that I just released is the Late Night Nudie Cutie Cinema Double Feature. And that has The des- uh, the Desires of Dawn and Mondo Visions. Two nudie cutie films I did in 2014, The Desires of Dawn, and 2016 is Mondo Visions. Um, it's 131 minutes runtime for both. Combined, 66 and 65 minutes each. They're both unrated, 1080p, high-definition widescreen, APC encoded, PCM stereo, and each film feature audio commentary with writer-director Jason Rudy, which is me. Uh, these are two nudie cutie films, very fun, very sexy, and uh, have basically beautiful nude women, cool music mixed with retro film styles. What more could you want? Uh, the second title we have is a uh, single title, Emmanuel in Sin City, the uncensored version, that film that was deemed too erotic and extreme for major streaming channels, totally uncut and uncensored, only available on Blu-ray. And that's a 2023 release, 75 minutes unrated, and that has audio commentary with me, Jason Rudy, uh, trailer reel, and uh, behind-the-scenes Um, photos and all that good stuff the third of course is the film you've most of you have seen by now Uh, but now it's available on blu-ray and that is lady hyde from 2022 unrated version uh 1920 by 1080p full hd resolution abc encoded pcm stereo uh, basically in all these um that's got uh, audio commentary by yours truly uh theatrical trailer and behind the scenes photo gallery and uh, that's the third release. And then we have two uh, volumes. Volume one, the short films of Jason Rudy, titled Dirty Deeds and Desperate Visions. And that features four films, uh, Room 412 from 2007, The Last Road to Hell from 2008, Chump Change, one of my favorite films from 2010, and finally the Dirty ABC Rhyme, which is from 2016. And that runs 117 minutes. And it, the special features on that is a uh, career interview divided in two parts. The first part is on this uh, volume one. And that's the creative process interview. And uh, the last release is the short films of Jason Rudy, volume two, 
titled Demon Dames and Desperate Visions. And that has uh, Lady, and that's the theme because it has the Demon Dames of Lady M from 2010, The Hunt for Super Fox, 2014, Simone Le Femme de Mon from 2015, and Report 2057 from 2016. And that runs 116 minutes, and the special feature on that is the Creative Process Interview Part 2. Um, that's also uh, um, ABC Encoded, PCM Stereo, all that good stuff. Um, and uh, they're all region-free, so uh, if you're anywhere in the world, you can watch them. They're, you don't have a problem with region coding on these. And they also ship worldwide, so if you're interested in that, let me know. And uh, you can order straight from the manufacturer. I'll send you the link and all that good stuff. And uh, pay through PayPal and or credit card, and it's all legit from the manufacturer. Or I can ship them to you myself as well if it's in the United States. So no problem on that. And while I'm at it, uh, let me just knock through these plugs before we start the show. Uh, we also have Lady Hyde, of course, is playing on Tubi and Amazon Prime. So uh, if you want to support the podcast... Please check it out on Tubi while it's still there. It's been on since November, so I'm not sure how much longer it'll be there. So check it out before it leaves or order it on Amazon Prime if you're not able to get Tubi. And also uh, a film of mine from 2013, which is one of my favorite films, uh, Mondo Sacramento 2, a true crime horror anthology all about true crimes from Sacramento's past. That is also just got added on Tubi TV for the month of May. It just started up, so please support me and the podcast and Desperate Visions Productions by watching it on Tubi. That's Mondo Sacramento 2. Just look up Jason Rudy or Mondo Sacramento 2 and you'll find it. Uh, if you dig the podcast and you want to support us, you support me, you definitely can. We have a donation page on the Red Circle homepage of the podcast. Uh, you can either do a one-time donation or a recurring I would uh, sincerely appreciate it. Uh, like you know, I do all these every week. Every Wednesday, new episode drops, rain or shine. And uh, it's always there for free for you to listen to to show the love for Jess. So if you care to donate, please check out the Franco Observer Podcast homepage on Red Circle. Uh, also subscribe. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do. we got about uh, 18 or 19 episodes left before the show wraps up. So... Uh, go ahead and add a subscription on there. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, and all your favorite podcasting platforms. We're on, gosh, probably 15 or 20 different ones at least. Um, also, too, I don't really say this that much, but if you're able to rate or leave a review for the podcast, I would appreciate it. It always helps because um, it brings, brings new people in and it 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 lets people know that there are people listening and it helps with uh, advertisers and all that stuff. So yeah, if you can leave a positive review or a four or five star rating, however that goes, I would appreciate that as well. Also too, if you like the show, if you like the Frank Observer podcast, if you dig any of my films, if you want to support me or support the desperate visions, word of mouth is always great with lack of budget for advertising. Cause you know, this is all free based deal. So, uh, not to all free basing, but yeah, free base, uh, tell a friend, you know, say, hey, there's this movie out. It's called Lady Hyde. It's on Tubi. Check it out. Or, hey, there's this really wild film called Bondo Sacramento 2. And I got a good review of a guy 
mentioned Monosaccharide too. It was like a true crime thing, a horror anthology, uh, but it was directed by John Waters with a cast from, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, not the last house on the left, but uh, House on Dead End Street, all on mushrooms, tripping balls. You know, So yeah, he, he definitely dug it from the weird side of Tubi. So yeah, check that out. Uh, yeah, so tell a friend. Tell a friend about the podcast. Tell a friend about Desperate Visions. Tell a friend about the Blu-rays for sale, all that stuff. I would sincerely appreciate it. Uh, you can also, like I said, get a hold of me at uh, francoobserver at yahoo.com and uh, support and like our Facebook and Instagram pages, the Franco Observer pages on Facebook and Instagram. All right, got all that out of the way there. So now on to the show. All right, so this is episode 143, film 158, uh, Esmeralda Bay, or also known as Countdown to Esmeralda Bay on the Full Moon Blu-ray and DVD release. Uh, the film before this is Faceless, that's film 157. We reviewed that way, way back on episode 18 with uh, Amber Kloss was my reviewer on that one, and uh, she watched that and enjoyed that film with me, that was before even it came on Blu-ray through Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, I think that's who put it. Yeah, yeah, that's who put it out. Um, so we ended up watching the original Blu-ray or the original DVD from like uh, it was like Retro Shock or somebody put that one out. So back in the day before it even hit released on Blu-ray. So yeah, that's how long ago we did that back on episode 18. So if you want to do these in order. Uh, film 157 is Faceless, and that's back on episode 18. But now you are listening to episode 143, film 158, Esmeralda Bay. That's the original French title, English language title. It's a Spain and France production, 1988. Original title in countries of origin, La Bahia Esmeralda in Spanish, or Esmeralda Bay in French. Alternative title, Bahia Esmeralda. Portugal video, USA video is Countdown to Esmeralda Bay. Uh, the Finnish video is called Caribbean Rebels. And the one out of Greek Greece is uh, Enterprise Esmeralda. The production company on this is the mighty Eurochin out of Paris. And Luria Films out of Barcelona. Uh, let's see, theatrical distributors... It says, although picked up for distribution in Spain by United International Pictures, the film appears not to have been released theatrically in Madrid, Barcelona, or Seville, nor does there appear to have been a French theatrical release. And that was by uh, United International Pictures of Spain and Le Film de Estere out of France. And before I go any further, all this information I am taking out of the book Flowers of Perversion, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 2 by Stephen Thrower. So yeah, that's a uh, essential tome for all of you. Volume one, volume two. Volume one's really expensive, but volume two you can still get. Um, it's still in print. So I think I think they're supposed to put out volume one again, but I'm not not sure what's going on with that. Uh, yeah. So uh, timeline on this shooting date is circa summer 1988. Uh, ready for screening at MIFED October 1988. Turn pretty quick. Turn around. Theatrical running time on this Spain is 90 minutes, and the French cut is unknown. Um, yeah, like, I, the Spanish cut is longer. Uh, the one that's out on full moon, I've been hearing, is the 
French cut, I believe, is the shorter one. Uh, yeah, because the uh, Spanish PAL DVD is 108 minutes, so I'm not sure how that works out. But yeah, there's a supposedly the Spanish release of it's a lot longer and it's a better film, supposedly. Um, I have just the full moon one, so that's the shorter cut. Of course, the director on this is Jess Franco. The screenplay is by Marius Lesur as A.L. Moreau. Uh, also, H.L. Rostain and Jess Franco. Music, Luis Enriquez Bacalov. Producer, General Music. Director of Photography, Henry Froggers. <laughs> A nice name. Uh, camera Assistant, Enrique Lopez Quesada as Henry L. Quesada. And Peter Raddick. First assistant director, Marius Lesur as A.L. Moreau. Uh, he's quite in quite a bit of this. He does the screenplay and uh, does the uh, first assistant director. He's really a Jess's ass on this. <laughs> uh, continuity, Ilona Konosova. Uh, production manager, Daniel Lesur as Dan Simon. Uh, production coordinator, of course, Anto- Anthony Mayans. Antonio Mayans. Uh, production manager, Antonio Mayans. Xavier Based, Enrique Vila, uh, Javier Pedro, okay, editor Lena Romay as Rosie Almoral, makeup Manuela Moreno, um, tailoring Daniel Katz, nice, uh, let's see, special effects, wow, that's interesting, special effects credit on this, Tony Hervans, Tom Eno, electricians credit, electrical equipment, Special effects, Felix Sepulveda as Felix R. D. Sepulvedaka. Uh, stunt coordinator, Doug Moraes. Well, I got quite a bit on here. Weapons, Rose Roasa. That's interesting. Uh, of course, heart credits for music. Performed by Maxine Nightingale. Spiritual music. Spiritual music, Daniel White. Nice. Guitar solos, Luis Alborado. Special thanks to Canon. Okay. Uncredited executive producer is Anthony Jovier, Daniel Lassur, producer is Marius Lassur, Enrique Cervez Cerezo, and co-editor Jesus Franco. Color, Africa color, white screen. All right. There's a lot of credits for this film, especially for a Jess Franco film. Uh, cast, Ramon Estevez as Ramon Sheen. Andreas is played by Robert Forster as Colonel Madero. Fernando Rey plays President Ramos. George Kennedy plays Miklos Wilson. Sylvia Tortosa Davis plays Linda Wilson, Miklos' second wife. Terry Valley plays Anita Wilson, Miklos' daughter. Craig Hill plays Agent John Perry. Brett Halsey, nice, plays Luis. Daniel Grimm as Harrison Grimm plays Antonio, Mr. Wilson's secretary. Noel J. Sampson plays Perry's boss in Washington. David Fulton plays the bearded naval captain. Jean-Pierre Delamour plays the naval captain's second-in-command. Lena Romay plays Loletta, the brothel madam. Antonio Mayans plays Rebel's priest, which is cool because Antonio Mayans is also known as Robert Forst, Robert Foster. And then you have Robert Forster in this, so that's interesting. Um... Uh, let's see, Antonio Mayan plays Rebel's Priest, and then just somebody named Piper. Karine Well, as Karin Wheel, plays the President's Secretary. Edgardo Hernan, as Ed Herman, plays... Oh, that's interesting, oh, that's no credit for him. Uh, Emilio Lisbona, 
nothing for them. Robert Long plays the head of Presidential Guard, and finally Jess Franco plays the Serena Captain. I'll go ahead and give the synopsis when I do the review after the break, so we'll save that for that. All right, the review by Stephen Thrower. A tale of gunrunners, attempted military coups, and international chicanery surrounding the fortunes of a fictional South American state, Esmeralda Bay is the closest Jess Franco ever got to a full-on political drama, although it's ultimately just an action film with a few sardonic political asides. Beginning with a whopping 10 minutes of day-for-night footage shot with a heavy blue filter, Esmeralda Bay does little to welcome the casual viewer. This is a shame because once the movie gets... I'm sorry, because once the story gets moving, it has some decent qualities, thanks to a great cast and a bracingly cynical attitude toward the various warring parties, military, civilian, and political. In keeping with Franco's loosely progressive left-leaning politics, the freedom fighters are conveyed sympathetically, even sentimentally, but at least this means we can be sure in a story full of treachery and a production full of compromise where Franco's true sympathies lie. If it weren't for this, we might begin to wonder... At one point, a hard-bitten CIA operative, a wonderfully malevolent Craig Hill, tells the guerrillas that they're innocents who need to keep their heads down and let the big guns get on with it. And it's true, the rebels are innocents, thrust into battle against forces mightier and more vicious than they are, which is not to say he's right about the need for them to leave the struggle to the Americans. Viewers, viewed seriously, this is a crux of the film's problem. Esmeralda Bay tries to have its cake and eat it too, depicting a noble guerrilla struggle against repression, hemmed in on all sides by competing military and political forces, homegrown and international, yet for all the film's sharp-eyed skepticism about U.S. military involvement in South American politics and American political attaché murmurs, we don't want another Nicaragua on our hands and keeps referring to the president of Puerto Santos as Marcos instead of Ramos. These very forces roll up and save the day in the end. Perhaps this was a byproduct of the casting of several American B-movie legends in the movie. The script has to roll out the welcome mat to the American actors, and American buyers presumably, while also satisfying the rest of the film's anticipated international audience. Franco ensures that there is some irony and ambivalence along the way, although the final caption indicating that the Americans sailed away after securing President Ramos' political survival may provoke a few snorts of derision when it, one recalls events like the CIA-organized coup d'etat in Guatemala. However, Esmeralda Bay does not stint on showing the CIA's cynical manipulation of events, with Major Perry committing cold-blooded murder in order to discredit what was once meant to be bloodless acts of resistance, a strategy that echoes various covert and or military adventures in Cuba in 1961, the Dominican Republic in 1963, Brazil in 1964, and Chile in 1973. The result is slightly schizophrenic, compromised even, but hey, that's politics, right? Technically, Esmeralda Bay is a tightly controlled professional product. At times, we're even treated to the dizzying and pleasurable pleasurable sensation of smooth, gliding tracking shots from a well-handled camera dolly. Wow. The acting, with the exception of dreary Terry Valle as Anita Wilson, is conveniently or is conventionally efficient and capable. The only letdown is a script, which is simply workmanlike and whatever 
and whether through writing failure or lack of time and money, tends to squander the potential of key moments. For instance, when the rebels attack the forces, fortress of Colonel Madero, their attack is timed to coincide with Madero announcing his intended military coup. So when the missiles hit the building, we really ought to see his face and the faces of these simple political warmongers. Instead, we cut away and Madero and his goons run down some stairs a long shot after the blast. Thus, a powerful, dramatic jolt is lost. For all the film's political subject matter, what this really boils down to is a bunch of guys playing at soldiers, intercut with stock footage of military operations. In the last 20 minutes, when the real drama is with the politicians and generals, we're subjected to endless shots of trundling hardware, as if Franco and his producers are afraid we'll find the machinations of human beings less interesting than a cut-and-paste montage of wham-bam gunfights and grainy military training films. Fernando Ray gives his portrayal of President Ramos real gravity. Craig Hill and Robert Forster are delivering relishable morsels of evil, but someone somewhere decided that what we really want from the climax of this picture is 10,000 tons of military metalwork blundering around in stock footage purgatory. Franco on screen. Franco plays the captain of a boat delivering arms to the rebels. Perfect. <laughs> uh, he always puts himself over as a good guy. That's funny. Uh, cast and crew. The real pleasure of Esmeralda Bay lies with its cast, a veritable flotilla of B-movie stalwarts. There's George Kennedy, star of a myriad of six, 1960s American TV shows who became the go-to man for stoic disaster movie heroes, playing Joe Petroni in Airport, Airport 75, Airport 77, and the Concord Airport 79. Before delightfully sending up his screen persona with the Naked Gun films, the first of which was made the same year as Esmeralda Bay. Here he wears a zipped-up car coat throughout the film and looks as though he's just stepped before the camera after a few rounds on an especially blustery golf course. Solid and dependable is pretty much all he offers, but the script doesn't require much else. Then there's Brett Halsey, in a curiously underwritten role as Luis, one of the rebels. Like Kennedy, Halsey's a veteran of American TV, but his career took a different path when he decamped to Italy during the 1960s and surfed the waves of spy, sword and sandal, and spaghetti western movies. With roles for Ricardo Freda, he's in Le Sette Spede Vindicatore, 1962. Uh, he acted for Tonino Serve. In the film Ogie Me Domani Ete, 1968, and of course Mario Bava, he did the film Roy Colt and Winchester Jack, 1970. After returning to the USA for over a decade, Halsey went back to European productions in the 1980s. He worked three times with Italian horror maestro Lucio Fulci, beginning with a downbeat erotic thriller The Devil's Honey, 1986, followed by an over-the-top performance in the gory Quando Alice Rupe, Lo Specchio, a.k.a. Touch of Death, and a slightly less bizarre turn in the non-sploitation opus Demonia, 1990. Fernando Ray gives gentle pathos to this out-of-depth President Ramos. He's especially good in the scene where he's asked by Antonio Mayan's rebel priest to leave a memorial service for the fallen of the country. You think you actually know me, he says, stung by the snub, but then leaves, tactfully acknowledging the emptiness of his protests. Best known for his work with Luis Bonel, who starred in uh, Veridiana, 
Tristiana, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, and The Obscure Object of Desire. Fernando Rey had appeared in Franco's 1966 spy romp, uh, Cartes Boca Arabia, and the Franco-scripted espionage in Lisbon, 1965, alongside Brett Halsey. Craig Hill, star of innumerable spaghetti westerns, as uh, Tonino Valeri's Per Gusto di Unicere, also in Mario, guys, a bunch of credits in this, Mario Canano's Siete Pistol per un Massacre, Nunzio Malasoma's Quindinci Farce per un Assassino, Paolo Mofa's Aluntima Sangue, Sergio Garon's Tre Croci per non more, Mario Grazano's Il Gorono del Guerzidizio, and many more. is great as the ambiguous American Major Perry, bringing a grizzled, gimlet-eyed hawkishness to his role. He'd have made a great Donald Rumsfeld if anyone ever had shot an exploitation film about the run-up to the Allied invasion of Iraq. But best of all is Robert Forster, who makes the repellent and despicable Colonel Madero so much fun to watch it's positively criminal. Yeah, I like Robert Forster. Rest in peace. Um, whether getting in the mood for his forthcoming military coup by mimicking machine gun fire throughout the presidential windows, smoochily seducing the rich bitch wife of arms dealer George Kennedy, or bullying the ineffectual president, he's magnetic and witty and sexy. Characteristics rarely allowed to coexist in a male role in a Franco film. Forster's presence in this film gave Antonio Mayans, usually billed as Robert Foster in Franco's film, an embarrassing moment, as Forster himself recalled in an interview with Will Harris in 2001. He said, There was an actor in Spain, and when I started out, people told me, told him that he looked like me, so he did a number of movies using the name Robert Forster, which you know apparently you can do over there. Not here. The Screen Actors Guild won't let you do that, but over there they did it. And I worked with this guy in a movie. He came over to me and sheepishly told me the story that I just told you. And they told him that he looked like me. So he made movies calling himself Robert Forster. Nice guy, though. That's funny. Music. Esmeralda Bay's brisk Morricone-esque score is by Luis Bakalov, who went on to win the Oscar for Best Score for his work on Michael Radford's The Postman, 1996. Uh, he previously worked for Pasolini, The Gospel According to St. Matthew. Wow. Uh, Sergio Carbucci, Django, Damiano, Dam, Damiani uh, for the bullet for the a bullet for the general, Federico Fellini for City of Women, and scored a string of movies for Italian crime movie specialist Fernando De Leo. He did uh, Milano Calabro Nine, Il Bas, Il Posatio, Il Marchio, Corpi and Canda, and others. Right, good stuff. His music for Giancarlo Santi's Spaghetti Western. The Grand Duel, 1972, and Antonio Esasi Esamendi's Spanish crime thriller Un Verano Pera Mater, 1972, were used by Quentin Tarantino on the soundtracks to Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2, respectively. Locations, Barcelona and Tarragona, Spain. And finally, connections. Uh, President Ramos, reflecting on life before being threatened at gunpoint by Madero, quotes Shakespeare's Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 4, in which the price of Denmark considers how one small flaw in a man's character may come to determine his legacy. And that goes as follows. K. 
carrying, I say, the stamp of one's defect, being nature's livery legacy. I'm sorry, being nature's livery or fortune star. Their virtues else, be they as part of pure of grace, as infinite as man may undergo, shall, in the general censure, take corruption from that particular fate. Shakespeare is referenced once again when the U.S. presidential aide refers to General Monty, who I hear is trying to organize a pushed with the other Cordelis around, Cordelia being the daughter of King Lear, banished from his side, who returns at the end to end of the play to find him mad. The reoccurring Franco character of a blind musician playing guitar as the character's plot and scheme in his presence pops up again. Nice. That was also in, like, in Jack the Ripper and a few other films. Uh, the fictional location of Puerto Santo refers to the seaside setting of Franco's downtown. La Bahia de la Esmeraldas was the Spanish title for The Moon Spinners, a Walt Disney production starring Haley Mills. So that's all I got on this film, Esmeralda Bay, or Countdown to Esmeralda Bay. All right, so that's that part of the wrap-up portion here. So... Hang out past the musical cues, and I will give you the synopsis for this film and my review of Esmeralda Bay. This is a solo review on this episode by myself, Jason Rudy. So, all right, hang out past the break, and you'll hear all of that. Buenas noches, Maha. Buenas noches. Alright, we are back with the review portion for episode 143, film 158, Esmeralda Bay, or titled on the uh, Full Moon DVD here, if I can find it in front of me, uh, Return to Esmeralda Bay. There you There you are. Um, I'm sorry, Countdown to Esmeralda Bay. Um... So, first of all, before I go into the review of the film, the review of the DVD I'm going to kind of do first, I noticed there's um, some sound problems in the first maybe 10 minutes or so, first couple sequences. There's a little bit of a garble uh, on the audio. I don't know if it's a problem with the 35 millimeter negative or if it was in the transfer to the DVD. I'm not sure. I don't think this was put out on Blu-ray yet through Full Moon. I looked it up, and I was only able to find the DVD, which I have. That was put out in uh, 2019 through uh, Full Moon Empire, Full Moon Pictures. Uh, besides the little bit of audio problems there in the beginning, the rest of the film looked good. Sound was good and everything. Um, Full Moon usually puts out a pretty good product with their Franco transfers. Um even the uh, Franco box that they put out from Dietrich years ago. Um, of course, his Blu-rays um, are a lot better than the Full Moon. But, you know, it's a DVD copy, so I was happy with that. So, yeah, that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing was, um, this is a pretty good film. I'm not a really big war film fan or anything. Um, I'm not a big, like... Uh, well, I mean, like Dirty Dozen and Magnif and those type of films, Great Escape and stuff. But, uh, yeah, this was uh, a little better than I thought it was going to be. Um, I liked it more than Dark Mission, which was the film 
not before this because before this was faceless but uh i liked it a little more in dark mission um the actors in it uh was it george kennedy was kind of funny he was he, he, he was good you could tell he was acting though his his performance um and it's funny to watch him kind of limp limp around a little bit compared to everybody else um Ramon Estevez as Ramon Sheen, I guess the son of Martin Sheen, brother of Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez. Wasn't bad. It's funny, once I realized who he was, you could totally see he looks like a younger uh, Emilio Estevez. Um, Robert Forster is really good in this film. I, I really enjoyed his performance a lot. Starts off as campy and uh, his accent comes and goes in different scenes which is pretty funny but uh i thought he was really good in this he definitely played it straight played it up really good fernando ray was good he has some really nice sentimental scenes uh very introspective performance i thought he was really good um who else we have here uh sylvia tortosa davis says linda wilson miklos's second wife She's all right. She she plays the heel in this, the kind of the Benedict Arnold turncoat. Um, Terry Valley as uh, George Kennedy's daughter is pretty good. I see she's in the next film, uh, Fall of the Eagles. So curious to see. I noticed she's in the next film. Uh, Ramon Estevez is in the next film, and uh, maybe one or two other people. But those are the main two that I caught. Um, Craig Hill as Agent John Perry's okay. Brett Halsey, it was kind of cool to see him in this film. He's he's pretty good as Luis. Um, anything else jumps in my opinion? Lena Romay. Lena Romay is, is good. She's in it too fleetingly. She. It's funny because I thought she was supposed to be the uh, brothel madam, but it, then they say it was an ex-casino that she runs. And they talk about her brothel, and she talks about the women, but we never see any of the women besides... Uh, the character of uh, Linda, Mikos, or George Kennedy's second wife in this. So uh, it's, it's interesting. I, for her having such a big brothel, you don't see any of the girls in the brothel. Um, but yeah, Lena's good in this. Um, Antonio Mayans' his brief role as the rebel's priest. He's good. And it was cool. If you listen to the first half, they talk about Robert Forster and him, um, who he played Robert Foster in a lot of the other films from Franco throughout the career, kind of a take off of his name because he thought he looked like him. People told him so, but even though I would think that, even though he wasn't acting yet, well, actually this time he was, but uh, Antonio Banderas I think resembles more of Antonio Mayans. They both have the name Antonio, so there you go. But uh, yeah, so I thought it was a good film. Um, there's a lot of oh I'll, I'll go into some of the minute things as we go through the uh, run through of the review, but uh, yeah I, I I enjoyed it more than I thought I would so it's pretty good. Alrighty, well let me give you the synopsis for this because when I watched it at first I was a little confused like the first fifteen minutes because there's a lot of like double crossing and you kind of don't know what's going on at first but as it goes through it it definitely plays itself out so all right here's the synopsis course by. Stephen Thrower from the book, Flowers of Perversion, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 2. Synopsis. The fictional Latin American country of Puerto Santo is falling into civil war. President Ramos is weak and cannot control the situation. The ruthless Colonel Madero, which is Robert Foster, head of the National Guard, 
who actually, I'm oh, sorry, Robert Forster, um, the ruthless Colonel Madero, head of the National Guard, who actually runs the country, welcomes the opportunity to welcomes the opportunity to foment discord. Interesting. After which, he plans to step in as dictator. Rebellion against the corrupt regime is being supported through gun running. Meanwhile, developments are being scrutinized by the American government, who are concerned about a possible opening for communism in the region. An American. Miklos Wilson, of course, played by George Kennedy, one of the wealthiest businessmen in Puerto Santo, supplies weapons to the guerrillas. Unbeknownst to him, however, his beautiful wife Linda is having an affair with Colonel Madero. She knows all the details of her husband's business and betrays him. The rebels wrongly suspect that the traitor is Lamat, an important member of the government. They mount a daring raid, attempting to kidnap him outside his ministry. However, a sniper, CIA agent John Perry, shoots Lamotte in the back as he's being shepherded to a waiting van. Against the wishes of President Ramos, Colonel Madero orders a cruel and bloody retaliation against the people. Anita, the daughter of Wilson's first marriage, is in love with Andreas, course played by Ramon Estevez, a young guerrilla leader. She suspects that Linda is the true culprit and convinces her father to put it to the test. Wilson mentions in front of Linda that the next armed shipment will come ashore at Esmeralda Bay, when in fact it is set to happen further up the coast. Linda's guilt is proven when Wilson and the rebels see Colonel Madero's men waiting at Esmeralda Bay. When Linda realizes that her treachery has been exposed, she takes refuge on the outskirts of the capital in a casino run by an ex-lover of Colonel Madero, which, of course, is Lina Romay. Madero abducts Wilson's daughter and holds her in Puerto Santos police dungeons. Meanwhile, Perry is assigned by Washington as an agitator in the area with a disposition or dis dispensation to use any method to ensnare the outcome favored by the USA advises Washington that it is time to intervene. He ensures that the rebels' attempt to rescue Anita from Madero's base ends in bloodshed in order to discredit the rebels, who are suspected to be communists and justify American involvement in propping up the Ramon administration. An American naval fleet on maneuvers in the Caribbean is ordered to disembark in Puerto Santo to help to President Ramos to help President Ramos and his troops. Treachery, confrontation, and much fighting ensue before the villainous Madero is beaten. Anita is reunited with her father, and order is restored to Puerto Santo. But with whom will Anita choose to spend the rest of her life? Her arms dealing father, or the handsome young rebel Andreas? Well, I think you know the answer to that. All right, so that's the synopsis of this. Um, I'm going to go through and tell you some of my notes, what I thought. Uh, in the first section, which I talked about the audio problems, there's a big night for day opening, which is pretty funny. Um, it's supposed to be like, I guess, nighttime, but you can totally tell it's daytime, tinted the film, all that stuff. Uh, just like uh, Dark Mission, this film has lots of slow motion killings, almost like he got... Uh, um, Just Franco might have been watching a few too many uh, Sam Peckinpah films because every time somebody was shot 
or there's a big gun shootout or um, some death happens all the way through the film. It, it slows down to really drag out the situation. Um, we have a, uh, a birthday party outdoor scene dancing uh, with Mr. Perry. That was the CIA guy. Um, also, there's a lot of slow motion during the abduction attempt scene, which I had talking about with, um, uh, what's his name here, Lamont. During that whole scene, it's really slowed down where they try to abduct him, and you see the sniper shooting him and the explosion and all that stuff. Um, military raids. Oh, yeah, So and also during the military raids. Um, Lena, of course, runs the casino slash brothel, which I had mentioned. Um, and uh, Robert Forster is really good in this film. There's a scene where he's first introduced where after they abduct the guns and they deliver them to him, he takes the gun and he's like kind of shooting out the window, not pull, but uh, pretending that he's shooting the gun like in a, like a little kid playing with a machine gun. He's like shooting it around and pointing out the window and it's really funny. I thought that was a funny scene. You kind of see where he's, it's a good character establishing scene where you can see that he's obsessed with playing war and that's his whole thing. So I thought that was interesting. He's really good in this once again. Um, yeah, like I said, lots of double crossing in this film. One thing I did like about this is the quick pacing through the film. A lot of quick editing. The film moves all the way through. It doesn't really, in the beginning it slows down a little bit, which is fine to establish the characters and establish who's the good guys and bad guys and who we're rooting for and what the situation is. And all the double crossing in that. Um, so that that part's kind of slow, which is okay because it goes through things. But compared to a lot of Franco films, this film doesn't take its time. It doesn't linger at all. It 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 it, it moves and it it jams through everything really quickly, um, which is good. I was gonna say they could have slowed it down a bit, but I'm fine with how it how it played out. Um, it seemed like. They had a story to tell, and they wanted to get through it and make sure they got it in time, and it didn't take too much time. Um, but yeah, so I thought the quick editing was really good. Uh, let me look and see who the editor on this is real quick, because uh, I'd be surprised if it was Franco. Um, continuity, production manager, director, screenplay. Uh, hmm, let's see here. Editor on this is Lena Romay. Wow, okay, Lena. So maybe it was Jess. Lena ingested is Rosie Almorell. So yeah, well, hats off to her. She did a good job editing on this. Um, a lot of stock footage I mentioned. There's a lot of stock footage of when the troops invading. Uh, a lot of anytime there's a helicopter, not of the actors in the helicopter, but stock shots of helicopters flying and landing and all that. Uh, battleships. Those are all stock footage. You can tell because the film stock changes quality, which is interesting. Um, Helicopter shots, all that, a lot of mix and matching of shots, um, so that was very different. Uh, speaking of very different, this is a very different kind of Just Franco movie. This is, um, like it, uh, Stephen Thor says, technically Esmeralda Bay is a tightly controlled professional product. Uh, at times we're even treated to the dizzying and pleasurable sensation of smooth gliding tracking shots from a well-handled camera dolly. Um, he says, the acting, with the exception of dreary Terry Valley, which is the daughter, and Anita Wilson, is conventionally efficient and capable. Uh, the only letdown is the script, which is simply workmanlike, and whether through writing failure or lack of time and money, tends to squander on the potential of key moments. Um, yeah, I can kind of see that. Um, 
I was laughing too because in Dark Mission, I had mentioned that there's a little uh, Tony Montana from Scarface, and in this film, uh, there's a little bit of Tony Montana when Robert Forster uh, says, uh, "Oh, when he when he when after his troops burn uh, George Kennedy's house, when his wife is." Uh, when they figure out that she was gave him wrong information, he goes, "Look what they have done to your house," and he sounds like Tony Montana. I was kind of laughing about that, trying to do his accent, his Cuban accent. Um, of course, we have. Uh, I like the big. Well, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! I like the big uh, George Kennedy and uh, scene at the end when he gets his revenge on his wife and Robert Forster. Um, he kills his wife. It was a nice scene and all that. Uh, then there's slow motion death again when Robert Forrester's killed, which is very funny. Um, and another spoiler alert here. A very funny death scene at the end when um, George Kennedy shoots down the helicopter of the CIA man and it blows up. You can see the strings that is holding the little like toy helicopter when it's blown up. You can see the strings on the right and left side of the screen, the kind of steel cable deal. And then... Uh, so so George Kennedy shoots down the helicopter and a piece of the helicopter's uh, body falls down and lands on George Kennedy and kills him. It's kind of pretty funny, actually. It looked really almost Ed, Ed Wood-ish style. You know, it's like a big piece of uh, metal comes down and lands on George Kennedy, like the side of a, like a, like a car door or something kind of lands on him and smashes him. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, like I said, a lot of double dealing in this film, a lot of, the people double crossing each other and stuff. He kind of does not sure what's going on, but I liked Franco's commentary on this and the other script writers that kind of show you the uh, the treachery of war, especially with the United States going in and propping up other countries and other factions, and then switching sides and putting in things to kind of destabilize areas. I thought that was pretty interesting. We've seen that throughout history with. Uh, um, Iraq and Iran and, and um, Taliban and all that and Hamas and all that stuff. So it, it was pretty interesting to see that kind of going through uh, played out in an artful kind of way. Um, the singer on the, there's a couple of funny theme songs too. I noticed in this period they were really big on the theme songs. Uh, Dark Mission had and of course Faceless uh, with Destination Nowhere. This film has uh, a funny theme song. Um, let's see if it has it written down here. Uh, okay, here it is. The songs "My Heart Knows Hard So Hard" and "Stay" they were performed by Maxine Nightingale, and uh, I like it says spiritual music. Daniel White in the guitar solo, Luis Alvarado. But yeah, Maxine Nightingale. It's very '80s kind of a uh, video era movie thing. It's, it's very fitting for the time, and this is uh. 1988, so yeah, it was maybe a couple years too late, but it definitely fits the the kind of Euro cheesiness of it, which which I like. So yeah, Maxine Nightingale, shout out to her. Um, so yeah, that's my kind of uh, brief review on this film. Um, you know, on these solo ones, they're a little shorter because I'm not talking back and forth to a co-reviewer and all that good stuff, so... All right, let me knock out the Franco list on this, and uh, there actually is a few things on here that hit the list so i was very happy so here once again is the franco observer podcast list of reoccurring themes and tropes that we see throughout 
many of the Franco films. Of course, in the Dietrich era, we had a lot of uh, reoccurring themes, the earlier stuff and even the later stuff. Um, and some of the more commercial films like this, there's less of them, but uh, there's definitely some that fit the thing. Oh, yeah, also, too, before I jump onto that, there's no nudity in this film. You see scenes where they could have had it with George Candy's wife, with Robert Forster, and she's in bed after sex, or or Lena Romay with her robe kind of slightly open. But yeah, no nudity at all, which is very different for a Jess Franco film. But also Dark Mission had no nudity, but then again, Faceless did. So, all right. Uh, Okay, number one on the list, Body of Water. Oh yeah, quite a few Body of Waters in this, a lot of oceans. Uh, We see the boats going on, which leads to number two sailboats yes we see sailboats in one shot uh 21 minutes into the film there's a bunch of sailboats in one scene uh number three on the list boats yeah there's battleships and and uh engine gas powered engine boats uh, a lot of uh power boats in this and like i said battleships and a lot of big boats in this film because it's the navy and everything so uh, number four, palm trees. Yes, plenty of palm trees in this all through the city and uh, by the coast. So we see nice palm trees in this as well. Number five, jungle sound effects. Yes, but very minimal. Um, nothing that's too jarring or too late over the soundtrack. So it's it, it fits with the setting and they don't overwhelm the dialogue or anything like that. Uh, number six, chained up person. Yes, the daughter Anita. When she's kidnapped by um, Robert Forster and his troops, she's held in the dungeon and she's uh, got chained on her wrists and she's chained up down in the dungeon. So I didn't think there would be, but yeah, there was definitely. So very cool. Number seven, dance scenes on stage, stripping. Nope, no stripping in this, no nudity. So that's a negative. Number eight, club scenes or dancing uh, scenes, people dancing, getting down, having fun times at a bar or someplace. Well, we have the dancing sequence in the beginning at the daughter's birthday party. We see a bunch of uh, young men and women uh, outside dancing to uh, music that's being pumped in, kind of a little jazz type of upbeat music, So, which leads us to number nine, jazz music. A little teeny bit, not, not a lot. Um, more of other uh, kinds of music, but there is a little bit of kind of jazzy film, uh, jazz in this film, so yeah, that works out a little bit. Number 10, excessive zooms. Nope, he's really good on this. Uh, he's controlled. It's zero scene. So he's a gun for hire. It's not a traditional Jess Franco film, so he's not going zoom crazy on this. Uh, number 11, out of focus shots. No, everything's really well in focus. Nothing going in and out of focus with the zooms or nothing like that. So usually number 10 and 11 go hand in hand, but that's pretty good in this. Number 12, mirror shots. Yeah, there's actually some nice ones. Uh, there's one through the glass. Uh, George Kennedy at the window. You see him, the reflection where he's looking out the window at his wife by the pool. There's a nice kind of glass shot there. There's a nice mirror shot in George Kennedy's place where he's talking to the rebels after the first gun shipment was stolen. Um, you see the nice reflection shots there. And there's uh, one or two other mirror shots in the film. So about three or four, not anything too crazy. But I'd say the biggest one was the uh, reflection off the glass of George Kennedy looking out to his pool with his wife and everything. It's a very nice Franco-style shot. Uh, 13, mind control theme. No, I'd say no. No traditional mind control. I'm not saying uh, 
government or, or rebellion or nothing like that as a mind control element. I'm just going to say there's no machine that controls your mind in this. Well, unless the machine is uh, communism or uh, capitalism. Uh, let's see. Number 14. Magic tongue scenes. Well, no magic tongue. There is Lena, but Lena doesn't get to use her magic tongue. So, no. Uh, 15. Red light scenes. No, no red lights blaring over the shots. So, that's negative. It's mostly with the Dietrich where they had the red lights. Uh, along with Dietrich. 16. Cheapskin rug. No, or masturbation with a letter C item. Well, uh, C is also communism or capitalism, but no, there's no masturbation with those elements. Uh, 17, mad scientist and servant. No, I don't consider Robert Forster in this a mad scientist or anything like that, so I'd say no. 18, fish tank shots. Unfortunately, no. But, number 19, talking parrot. Yes. At 25 minutes in, there's a scene where you hear Franco dubbing a parrot's voice. Um... He, he says something inaudible, but you can totally tell it's Jess Franco as the parrot voice. So that made me really happy because he snuck it in real quick. <laughs> uh, number 20, end credits, yes or no? Yes. Um, plenty of long end credits with all the credits for the singers and the continuity and everybody. Uh, I don't know if it said the end or not. I kind of forgot to check, but definitely end credits on this film. Uh, number 21, handwritten signs, anything kind of janky looking that says bar written on cardboard or anything made for this film that was less than professional. And I'd say no, everything was really well done on this. Uh, number 22, a spiral staircase shot. No, there's plenty of staircases in this, um, but no spiral staircase where like a lot of the places will have the little makeshift one where they put it in from top floor to bottom floor and you kind of go down in a circle in a spiral or a traditional grand staircase that goes down into a spiral but yeah no spiral staircase shots in this that i caught 23 inept cops uh i'd say yes because uh the government everybody's inept um a lot of uh you know treachery and double crossing and that so yeah i would say that would work for that favor and they get and they get uh bushwhacked and killed by the rebels and all that stuff so yeah 24 belly chains uh no no belly chains in this film uh nothing like that uh number 25 kinks well there's really no sex in this uh and i mean the wife is kind of a adulterer i guess maybe that's her kink but nothing too crazy on this uh, 26 great headboards yes uh, linda's bed george kennedy's wife she has a really cool uh, headboard and the headboards in the brothel slash casinos pretty cool too uh 27 fear or desire see there's one i was kind of on the fence on i think it's both i think there's the fear of the uh government kind of squashing the rebels but then you have the desire of the rebels to try to take out the the communism of it and, and to try to or take out the socialism communism, whatever, and so I think there's that type of desire to be free and to fight the government. So, I don't know, maybe a little bit of both, but probably more desire. Uh, number 28, acoustic guitar player. Yes, uh, in the brothel scene when Linda and uh, Robert Forster are in bed talking, the guitar player is all through there, and then you have the guitar player with Lena. Um, when she watches the TV and all that stuff, you see him playing, who's uh, played by... Uh, Luis L. 
Alborado. Uh, number 28, reading a book scene. No, I didn't catch anybody reading a book in this film, sitting around uh, passing time. And number 30, a pee scene. No, nobody goes pee. Nobody pees on anybody. Nothing like that. Not after. I think Fallow Cresto might be put a stop to that, but we'll see. We, I got a, about another 18 films ahead of me, so we'll, we'll see if there's any more pee-pee in the scenes. So, All right, well, that concludes my review of Esmeralda Bay, a.k.a. Countdown to Esmeralda Bay on the packaging but uh, before I go, let me pass off one more plug for my Blu-rays. Um, I, of course, am a f- low-budget, micro-budget filmmaker, just like Uncle Jess. And I myself had made uh, 17 films now. So I have many of those on sale as we speak. Uh, you can find information on the Franco Observer Podcast Instagram page or uh, the Facebook page. Or you can also write me at um, DesperateVisions at Yahoo.com or DesperateVisionsProductions at Yahoo.com. And I will give you the links and the information for you to purchase those. They are $20 each. Um, Once again, I have Lady Hyde Special Edition with audio commentary and tons of extras. Emmanuel in Sin City with audio commentary and special features. Um, two separate editions of the short films of Jason Rudy, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Each of those run approximately two hours long, and each of those feature four short films apiece. And finally, we have a nudie-cutie double feature of The Desires of Dawn and Amondo Visions. So right now, that's five releases uh, on Blu-ray at $20 each, but if you buy the complete set, I'll cut you a good deal, and you'll save at least 2-3 bucks a piece on each of those if you buy them all. So, so please help out a uh, fellow podcaster, fellow filmmaker. As you know, I give you these episodes every week for free, and I sincerely appreciate you listening every week, and uh, I never take money from you, so if you want to help me out and uh, let me keep fulfilling my destiny of being a filmmaker and putting out films takes people buying the films for you to keep making the films. So please help me out on that. Um, also too, as we speak, I am releasing another past film of mine. Um, Mondo Sacramento. The first one will be on Blu-ray with, uh, original audio commentary with the cast and crew that was recorded years ago. Uh, bringing that back out, and also we have a brand new behind-the-scenes sequence shot during the Batgirl strip club scene that was never released before, but went through my hard drives, found it together, and edited together a nice uh, about 10 or 15-minute section on that, and we have a picture reel and a bunch of other stuff on that, so that should be out very soon as well. I just finalized the uh, ISO on that, and about done putting together the packaging and uh, we'll send that out to the manufacturer to have it assembled and that should be out in June so be on the lookout for that then we will have uh, six releases by that time so in looking at uh, 4, 8, 10, 11, 12, 13 films we'll have on Blu-ray so so please support Desperate Visions Productions and the films of Jason Rudy at, at DesperateVisions.com 
uh, sorry, at DesperateVisions at Yahoo.com or DesperateVisionsProductions at Yahoo.com. Feel free to drop me a letter and uh, see if you want to buy those Blu-rays. I would appreciate it. So, all right. Well, that concludes this portion and this podcast episode. So, once again, Buenas noches, maha. Buenas noches. Ah. Thank you.